Section 20 of An Explorer in the Air Service This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Asterix An Explorer in the Air Service by Hiram Bingham Section 20 The Future of Aviation with increased knowledge as to the possibilities of aviation other departments of the government will more and more desire to own and operate their own planes and dirigibles the post office department has its own problems which are even now being successfully worked out similarly the forest service will desire to use small dirigibles to enable their forest ranges to cover large reservations quickly and effectively in the course of time the department of agriculture will undoubtedly wish to use airships to make rapid surveys of large crop areas the navy department will continue to control the seaplanes and dirigibles which are now such indispensable adjuncts of the modern battleship the treasury department will need to use the air just as it uses the water for revenue cutters in order to prevent the breach of those laws the observance of which the Treasury Department is particularly interested in. The Department of Justice will need a certain number of fast planes in order that its special agents may make rapid visits to those places that require immediate investigation. In considering the future, we must remember that the air has become one of the routes of travel and that its use as such is going to grow just as the use of our navigable streams has increased since the days of fulton and the uses of the ocean have multiplied since the days of prince henry the navigator and the commencement of scientific navigation to be sure aviation is only in its infancy it must not be expected that its future will be smooth and lacking in incident the man in the street has been watching the progress of aviation during the past ten years with varied emotions at first he showed great interest in the progress of an art which was made of practical utility by the patient scientific experiments of the wright brothers then after noting with dismay the large percentage of well-known flyers who were killed his enthusiasm waned and he was inclined to feel that perhaps after all man was not intended to imitate the birds a few of his friends bought airplanes that did not fly or at any rate which could not be made to fly by the purchasers and he learned to discount the statements of airplane manufacturers he discounted them so far in fact that unless he was fortunate enough to come into personal contact with curtis flying boats at miami or atlantic city his faith was dead his lack of interest was reflected in the small size of the appropriations which congress saw fit to make for the development of aviation in the army and navy this feeling of discouragement was further enhanced by the disputes and scandals connected with the administration of the army aviation school at san diego then came the war and the achievements of the celebrated lafayette squadron the man in the street began to read of aerial victories and came to believe that the war could be won in the air if enough money was spent his imagination visualized a cloud of american planes over germany his enthusiasm reached such a pitch 
that the largest single appropriation ever made for aviation in all its history six hundred and forty million dollars was passed almost without discussion and practically unanimously by a congress which reflected his superlative optimism the newspapers which he read in the fall of nineteen seventeen as he rode home from his day in the street gave him a tremendous sense of comfort in the thought that we were soon to overwhelm the huns in the air then came unaccountable delays scepticism and disappointment took the place of optimistic enthusiasm dismay followed and in the summer of nineteen eighteen the man in the street threw his aviation ideals overboard shrugged his shoulders and decided that somebody had sold him a gold brick so completely did he turn his back on his former belief that he refused to read about what had been really accomplished before the armistice was signed or reading it declined to be fooled a second time the fact that he had expected more than was humanly possible did not help him to appreciate the miracle that had actually been performed in a year and a half the army air service had grown from having two hundred and twenty four airplanes of doubtful value a magnificent retrospective museum as a visiting french aviator remarked to over seventeen thousand a large percentage of them the best in the world for the purposes for which they were intended we did not manufacture all of the seventeen thousand nor did france or england manufacture all the ammunition they used the point is we had them there were other achievements that the man in the street might have been proud of he believed in the rolls-royce motor but thought the liberty motor a failure he ought to have been interested to learn that england with all her faith in the rolls-royce was only able at the end of the war to make ten a day while we were manufacturing a hundred and fifty liberty motors every twenty-four hours this took time to develop it always does take time to put a new motor on a production basis he did not know that in order to manufacture a liberty motor on a typical american quantity production basis it was necessary to make three thousand separate tools jigs and fixtures with his scepticism and his lack of technical knowledge he did not understand why england and france were eager to purchase liberty motors he doubted the statement that they were willing to take all we could spare them the chief reason was that the liberty motor is remarkably efficient it weighs one hundred pounds less than the rolls-royce and develops one hundred horsepower more it is not surprising that the first motors to succeed in crossing the atlantic ocean were liberty motors while the rolls-royce got red-hot and mr hawker had to look to a chance steamer for aid with regard to airships and balloons the man in the street knew very little or he would have taken even more pride in the american air service from being able to make two balloons a week when we went into the war our capacity increased so that when the armistice was signed we were actually making seventy balloons a week but that was not the principal thing although the presence of these kite balloons was an important factor in winning the war on the western front we probably never shall know just how many of our military secrets were known to the hun 
nor just how far this knowledge and what it meant in terms of the spring campaign for nineteen nineteen led him to sign the armistice in the fall of nineteen eighteen it may have been that the knowledge of our ability to begin inflating our balloons with non-inflammable gas a gas which could not be exploded by the fire of incendiary bullets from hun airplanes had something to do with his decision that the game was not worth the candle the fact remains that we had learned to produce helium gas in quantity and that the first shipment was made in november nineteen eighteen the aerial observer riding steadily in the basket of a kite balloon had proved to be more useful in the control of artillery fire than his brother in the observation airplane who was continually dodging anti-aircraft fire to say nothing of the attacks of hostile planes the balloon filled with hydrogen made a relatively easy mark for hostile planes and it took only one bullet to send it down in flames while the observer escaped in a parachute had it been filled with helium he would have been able to stay up almost indefinitely and the observer would have given a good account of himself by using machine-guns firing from a relatively stable platform against the attacking airplanes whose guns were firing from a platform moving at the rate of more than a hundred miles an hour helium as the gas next lightest to hydrogen and with ninety-five per cent of its lifting power was not known to the man in the street and would not have interested him for when we entered the war helium cost seventeen hundred dollars a cubic foot to have used it on the western front in the same quantity that we used hydrogen would have cost us thirty four billion dollars or more than all our liberty bonds combined the knowledge of what we might do if we could produce it at reasonable cost led to such earnest investigation on the part of our scientists in washington that a method was discovered whereby helium could be extracted from natural gas in texas or oklahoma at the cost of ten cents a cubic foot instead of thirty four billion dollars it would then only have cost two million dollars to replace hydrogen in our balloons over the lines these things should have encouraged the man in the street as he becomes conscious of them they will eventually lead him to take a new interest in the possibilities of aviation and the future of the air service the extraordinary success of the british dirigible in hunting submarines and keeping on their trail until they were put out of business is now one of the open secrets of the war the dirigible more easily than the fast-flying airplane could pick up the oily trail of the submarine locate various oily surfaces examine them at its leisure stalk the submarine to its lair and finally direct the destroyers where to drop their depth bombs most successfully in the matter of coast defence it would seem as though dirigibles were far more successful than seaplanes in the pursuits of peacetime the possible activity of dirigibles both small and large has scarcely been given due consideration in america the possibilities of a small dirigible are enormous and but dimly appreciated if one is willing to run the risk of fire and use hydrogen gas a portable gas-making machine has been perfected which enables one readily to make hydrogen from a wayside stream 
if one prefers to use helium it can be compressed into tubes that are feasible for transportation furthermore the leakage of helium is not as great as that of hydrogen a skilful aeronaut can find landing places for a dirigible in many regions where landing in an airplane is absolutely out of the question the use of dirigibles in exploring large flooded areas and making prompt reports regarding the extent of the flood has been suggested imagine what an enormous saving could be effected by prompt accurate reports of its description at a time when telegraph wires are down and communication by railroad or automobile has been seriously broken their use in crossing desert areas where full advantage can be taken of prevailing winds and where by sailing low a large amount of data can be collected with the minimum amount of risk and delay should be considered it frequently happens that important mines are located in the midst of mountainous deserts which are very difficult of access a case has been brought to my attention of a miner in alaska who lost a hundred thousand dollars because of his inability to go over the trails during the winter season he would have been willing to pay twenty five thousand dollars for that transportation which would have been entirely practicable had a dirigible and its crew been available in exploration in the amazon valley we have always been hampered by the extreme density of the jungle and the necessity of keeping near the great watercourses there are thousands of square miles within easy flying distance of navigable rivers thousands of square miles of totally unexplored country which the explorer who has a dirigible could photograph map and investigate from a low elevation in the air to his heart's content to attempt to do this in airplanes would mean the necessity of flying at great elevations in order to increase the margin of safety in case of engine failure and make it possible to glide to some safe landing area upon a navigable stream on the other hand a small dirigible operating from a motor-boat on a river could make journeys of hundreds of miles over absolutely unknown regions with a very small amount of danger owing to the dirigible's ability to float low over heavily forested country a tropical botanist or a practical forester skilled in the commercial features of the amazon basin could locate at very little expense the important groves of mahogany or rubber which do so much to make the tropics profitable in commerce should commercial aeronautics be under a separate branch of the government at the sixth national foreign trade convention held in chicago in april nineteen nineteen representatives of the largest and most powerful exporting manufacturers and merchants of america adopted the following resolutions realizing the unquestioned advantages of having the speediest possible mail and express service in enabling american enterprise to compete successfully in securing the specifications and requirements of our foreign contracts this convention urges prompt congressional consideration of suitable plans for developing aerial navigation the establishment of the necessary aids to such navigation the investigation and development of the fundamental principles of commercial aeronautics 
the promotion of airship service to distant countries are matters which demand the prompt establishment of a separate department of the government one of its chief duties should be to provide the necessary information which will make possible the use of aerial navigation as an aid to foreign trade the development of foreign trade depends in large measure upon pleasing the foreign customer when his need arises he gives his order to the man whose integrity he respects who can deliver the goods most promptly and whose standing in the local community is at a high level agents of american goods abroad have in the past been at a disadvantage owing to lack of proper banking facilities lack of adequate ocean transport and lack of prestige due to the absence of our flag on the best passenger and freight lines these things have been largely remedied and our european competitors know that at least american banking facilities and american steamship lines have improved during the war to such an extent as greatly to assist the american exporter consequently they are naturally turning to the possibilities of aviation as a means of passing us in the race and securing the most attractive foreign contracts if the foreign buyer knows that his order must go by steamship mail from buenos aires the greatest city of the southern hemisphere or from hong kong or yokohama those great markets of the far east before they can be delivered to our factories in america a process that will take about three weeks in time as compared with three or four days if he sends the order to europe by a british dirigible airship like the r thirty four it will be hard to secure that order if he is in a hurry furthermore if he knows that he can secure from europe specifications or missing parts by airplane express within a week or ten days from the time he sends for them while it would take him from six weeks to two months to get the same service from new york it will be very difficult for the american exporter to secure his order our british cousins have a knowledge of export trade and how to develop it that is second to none even during the darkest days of the war the British Air Ministry was studying the problems of civil aerial transport. They have been experimenting with rigid dirigibles for several years. They sent a sample over here in 1919 to prove that the thing was feasible. The R-34 and ships of her type, which are being built in England today, can go anywhere in the world, provided there are proper terminals and provided there are occasional ports to which they can repair in time of stress and where they may ride safely while taking on supplies of gas and oil as soon as they can be sure of sufficient aids to aerial navigation and proper docks that will not endanger the safety of these expensive but speedy aircraft england and france will have lines of rigid dirigibles and seaplanes established between the principal cities of europe and the great foreign markets in south america and the far east of course it will take time to develop these terminals but england is steadily working on the problem while we are making little or no attempt to progress in that direction after years of experimentation england has learned how to build a successful rigid dirigible which can cross the atlantic in less than forty-eight hours without endangering either passengers or crew in case of engine trouble we have developed no rigid dirigible in this country nor so far as i know are there any under construction 
it seems as though we were asleep to the possibilities of aerial transport there is no question that england's foreign trade is going to be tremendously boomed by her far-sighted study of civil aerial transport and by her present attention to rigid dirigibles when these great airships are seen in foreign ports flying the british flag and offering quick connection between british manufacturers and their foreign customers we shall find effective competition to be very hard sledding if we wait until we actually see and feel the effects of the british aerial international transport it will take us years to catch up and in the meantime the position of our competitors will be more and more firmly established history is curiously repeating itself in this question of foreign transportation one hundred years ago steamers were just being tried out the first one to cross the atlantic was an american the steamer savannah she took thirty days to cross the ocean while our clipper ships often did it in half that time our experienced exporters instead of having vision and doing all in their power to establish american lines of steamers were contented to rely on our attractive clipper ships and to brag about their performance while england gradually developed lines of ocean steamers and we one day woke up to the fact that our clipper ships were out of date and that england had the coaling stations the foreign agents the necessary terminals and the technical knowledge to enable her to push our ocean-going commerce out of the foreign ports where it had once been so well known are we about to do this all over again are americans willing to be content with having made aerial navigation a practical possibility and then going to permit its future development to rest in the hands of our european competitors and thus let them secure the most efficient handmaid of future foreign trade we may confidently expect that the army of the future will spend much time and thought in developing military aeronautics and the navy similarly in the growth of naval aeronautics then who is to look after commercial aeronautics who is to conduct the fundamental experiments in the use of the air who is to carry out the meteorological surveys to be made before aerial transportation can be fully developed who will establish the aids to aerial navigation such as airports windbreaks lighthouses beacons storm warnings life-saving stations with aerial patrol ready to give assistance to wrecked airships whose business is it to do all these things until these are done until proper wharves and suitable harbours are prepared for the reception of airships where they will be as safe in time of storm as are those sailing vessels which plough the seven seas the future of aviation as far as we are concerned will be relatively insignificant we recognise the fact that a coast without ports and harbours does not attract commerce does not develop sailors and does not conduce to a prosperous merchant marine we have hitherto failed to recognize the fact that a land without airports and air harbors cannot expect to witness the rapid development of commercial aeronautics the future of aviation depends in large measure on the speed with which we provide aids for aerial navigation these are not needs which concern the army or the navy nearly as much as they concern the merchant and the manufacturer who depend on them for their support 
the commerce of the future demands special consideration from a governmental department of aeronautics such a department would give it the fostering care that has been shown by the department of agriculture in its bureaus of animal industry and plant importation just as the department of agriculture has helped to provide better horses for the cavalry and better seeds for the farmer just as it has helped us to produce more healthy crops and to solve the complex problems of farming so must the department of aeronautics provide winged steeds for the mounted officers of the field artillery reconnaissance planes for the cavalry and adequate aerial transportation for our merchants and manufacturers finally we must not allow aerial accidents to blind us to the importance of aerial navigation Two thousand ocean vessels were wrecked on the shores of Cape Cod prior to 1915. Nevertheless, in the preceding centuries, the progress of ocean navigation went steadily ahead on the New England coast, in spite of loss of life and property. We may confidently expect that aerial navigation will slowly advance, in spite of fatal accidents and numerous crashes. Still, if we believe in aviation it is our duty to strive by every means in our power to secure the construction of those aids to navigation that will reduce the risks and encourage the enterprise of the daring young pilots who are ready to do their part in making the air service of the future a glorious page in the history of america end of section twenty End of An Explorer in the Air Service by Hiram Bingham